Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. Continuing on in our series on the Ten Commandments this morning, this is our second week and we are yet to read or get into actually any of the Ten Commandments. And we will we'll get there shortly. I think next week we got one more introductory sermon that we'll get to. Uh, but this week we find ourselves just, we need to kind of build a foundation for why we would even in a Christian church, in a modern Christian church, discuss something like the Ten Commandments. Uh, they're, they're out of vogue. They're not popular in today's culture. We, we have new ideas. We have new laws. We have new ideas, new thoughts. And the Old Testament, the, the law, the Ten Commandments, that's, that's kind of for way back when over those old people. And now that we're new in the modern age, uh, they don't have the weight. It's become not as popular to discuss things like the Ten Commandments. So in that, in that culture, in that idea, in that thought that we all just kind of live in and, and marinate in, we have to spend some time answering the question of even why would we do something like go back, clear to the book of Exodus, and look at the Ten Commandments as though they're anything that have authority over us. Now, I want to stress this every week. We are doing this because we love the gospel. We are looking at the Ten Commandments because we love the gospel. Because I, I love the gospel and I want you all to love the gospel. And now it might sound counterintuitive. If we love the gospel, why is Darren going to spend all these weeks, 12 or 13 weeks, talking about the rules, talking about the Ten Commandments? If the gospel is good news... Why would we dare stand up here and talk about the commandments, the things that God has said, these are the things we should do? The reason is, is just what I've stated. We would go to the Ten Commandments because we love the gospel. We need to understand why the gospel is necessary. The gospel is not some add-on to an already good life and already sufficient. God looks at us, loves us, and oh, by the way, Jesus died for you as well. That, that's, that's the gospel as a take-it-or-leave-it kind of reality. And that is not the picture we get from Scripture. Because we love the gospel, the gospel comes to us after we've been crushed by the reality of what the Ten Commandments put for us, the, the, the requirements God has put forward on what a moral, a holy, and a righteous life before Him looks like. And when we look at those commandments, we are crushed. Then we see the beauty of of the gospel. So, though we are going to spend 13 weeks or so talking about the way we have all failed and the way the Ten Commandments come and they crush us, it is not because Darren is this 
sadistic evil. It wants to just make everybody feel bad. So, and I, I have to say that because here's what's going to happen. At some point in this series, it's likely that you're going to hate me. I'm just going to, just going to tell you out front. At some point in this series, you're going to hear something Darren says, and you're be like, that guy is saying, is calling me out. He's just what it's going to feel like at points along. Or he's saying, I don't like what he's saying. It's going to happen. Trust me. At some point in this series, you're going to think, I don't like what he's saying. So I have to say up front, listen, the Ten Commandments are about love. It's about love for you. It's about love to realize the crushed position that you are in apart from God's mercy and God's grace. And when we see the state that we are in, then the gospel comes to us and says, look, though you have failed, here's what Jesus has done. I don't want to steal all my thunder up front. So the text this morning, though, Jesus, we don't talk about this one a lot, but Jesus just clearly states not an iota, not a dot, not a single, not a dot to the eye of the law will pass away until heaven and earth pass away. That's how long-standing God's law will be. It does not pass away. Jesus says, I've shown up not to abolish the law or get rid of it, but to fulfill it. And so the law of God is still in effect. When Jesus shows up, you know, he's, he fights with the Pharisees a lot, right? They have, they have these rules and he's, and, you know, about the adulteress and about all these different things and about the Sabbath. They have all of these rules and Jesus shows up and he's, he's fighting against them on all of these rules. But J.I. Packer points out that what Jesus destroyed in arguing against the law, what Jesus destroyed is inadequate expositions of the law, not the law itself. What Jesus shows up and argues with the Pharisees about it's not the nature of the law, but the Pharisees' inadequate expositions and interpretations of the law. They had said, here's the law, and they added all these external rules to it. And Jesus shows up, and that's what he's fighting against. So last week, we just, we just kind of laid the groundwork of God is there. He has spoken. We should listen. Just the basic Christian worldview. We could argue different worldviews, and I'd love to sometime if you have different, and you want to talk about different worldviews and approaches to who we are and why we are here and what's behind it all. I'd love to talk about it, but I unapologetically, we are in a Christian church, which means we believe God is there. We also believe that God has spoken to us, and that because He has spoken, we should listen and we should obey that there is someone outside of the box, is what we talked about. There is an objective someone, and his name is God, and he has spoken, and we should listen. And so God has put forward this law. And what, what always comes up, if you start talking law, if you start talking God says you shouldn't do this, God says you shouldn't do that, there are a few objections that no matter what, if any person has studied Christianity at all, there's a couple of objections you'll always get. I'll give you a few seconds to think about. What are, what are objections that are out there? When you say, well, God has said this is wrong. God has said adultery is wrong. God has said um, lying is wrong. God has, says, has said theft is wrong. God has said uh, taking his name in vain is wrong. You start bringing up these laws, objections come up. And maybe you've heard this, but people will say something like, how can you still hold to those laws? Do you, everyone, going to check your tags on your clothes. Are you wearing clothing of mixed fabrics? Are you wearing clothing of mixed, does anybody, do you know? Are you wearing, is anyone here wearing a 100% cotton only outfit that is sewn with 100% cotton thread? No, no one is, right? 
No one is. Right. We're all wearing mixed fabrics. Well, that question comes to us. If you have your Bibles out and you want to look with me, that comes from the Bible. All right. So Leviticus 19, 19. So I'm just this is what will come at you if you try to be a person that says, I believe in the law of God. I believe in the Ten Commandments. They're going to say, well, how come you wear clothes and mixed fabrics? You're a lawbreaker. So you're a hypocrite. That's what's going to come at you. Well, Leviticus 19, 19 says this. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two different kinds of seed. I'm in trouble. My garden's got all kinds of different kinds of seed in it. You shall not sow your field with two different kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Well, what's the deal? I mean, there it is, God's law. Do we believe in the law? Well, are you wearing clothes? You're a mixed fabric? You're a lawbreaker. You're a hypocrite. I don't have to listen to what you say. You'll get that. And it's coming from Leviticus 19. You'll also get, does anybody here eat shrimp? Everybody, we eat shrimp. I like shrimp, right? Okay. Well, they would say, if you, if you eat shrimp, well, you're a lawbreaker. Leviticus chapter 7 has these rules on what you should eat. And it's just very clearly, and does anybody here like bacon, pig? I mean, we raised, I mean, we raised, dad raised pig, and we had all kinds of pork. We had pork chops this week. We, we eat pork all the time. Well, if you read Leviticus chapter 7, there are these dietary restrictions that you shall not eat a pig. Um, verse, let's see, we can look at just quickly, oh, that's 11. It's not 7. Leviticus 11, cleaning the unclean animals. Leviticus eleven nine through 12. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters, it is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. And 11.4, Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. And he jumped down to Leviticus 11.7, included, and the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and does not chew the cud. It is unclean to you. You like bacon? Well, this is what, we, this is what a person hearing the law, and, and I'm just, I'm, this is kind of, this isn't preaching, this is just kind of teaching up here this morning, but this is an argument that comes to us. Well, what do you mean? If you eat bacon, you're a lawbreaker, so you're a hypocrite. I'm going to have to keep your law because you break the law all the time. What do we answer? How do we handle these type of things? How do we handle this Ten Commandments that I'm spending all these weeks talking about when it's pointless because we're all lawbreakers because I got polyester and I don't know what all over my outfits and I eat bacon and pork all the time and shrimp. I have no problem with it. I'm a lawbreaker. How do we handle these things? Theologians talk about this distinction. We're going to talk about three things, and then we're going to talk about three things. So the first three things we're going to talk about, theologians talk about this distinction between the different types of the law. There is the civil law, there is the ceremonial law, and there is the moral law of God. There is the civil law of God, which is, how you, which is all statutes and ordinances. So as you read through your Old Testament, there's all sorts of ways that the people of God are to act as the people of God. They are a theocratic nation. They are ruled by God as their sovereign. And so he has all of these rules that they are to keep up, the ways they're supposed to treat sinners and all the things they're supposed to do with those who disobey. And there's all sorts of ceremonial laws, like sacrificial systems they have to go through and wearing not mixed fabrics and dietary laws 
there's all these civil and ceremonial laws that are, that are statues and ordinances that are laid out through all of the Old Testament. However, there is a third category, which is the moral law. So when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we're not talking about the civil laws or the ceremonial laws. We're talking about the moral laws of God. Now, they're kind of mixed up in there. We don't have time to try to sort all of them out. But there's these clear distinctions in the law of God between his ceremonial, his civil, and his moral laws. When it comes to ceremonial laws, laws regarding the ritual purity of the Israelite people, we have to see that all of these are a shadow of Christ. You sell your Bible out, it's Colossian Bible out. Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, talks about these things. When there's these Sabbaths, there's these new moons, all these festivals, these ceremonial laws they're supposed to keep. He says, Paul says to the church at Colossae, chapter 2, verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with, with, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There's something going on in the ceremonial and the civil law that Christ comes as the fulfillment of. You can read the whole book of Hebrews, which is this giant book talking about all of these rules and rituals and ceremonies set up that were intended to lead them to Christ. Christ as the fulfillment of all these ceremonial and civil laws. We could look, and when it comes to the dietary laws, again, from this passage in Colossians, but if you wanted to read Acts chapter 10, when it comes to, would you eat bacon? Do you eat shellfish? Do you eat shrimp? Do you eat things you're not supposed to eat on the law? Acts chapter 10 is this interesting story where Peter, you might remember, is, uh, is, praying, at, is praying up on the roof, and he has this vision of a sheet being let down with vixed, vixed, various and mixed, not vixed, Various and mixed animals in the sheets. And the vision, God says to him, take and eat. Peter objects. He says, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God, again, he gets this vision, the sheet coming down, mixed various animals, unclean and clean. And God says to kill and to eat what what are these unclean animals. And it begins this revelation of of, of a... Uh, abrogation and getting a, or doing away with the dietary laws that are found in the ceremonial and the civil laws of God's people. All of these statutes and regulations, we got to move on, that, uh, in the ceremonial and civil laws, they are put there in place to deal with the theocratic nation of Israel as God's elect people. God, this is a big book. And this is, this is a recording to us of God's dealing with his people throughout a long history. And so at, time, at a period in time, God dealt with the children of Israel, his people, in a specific way that had certain ceremonial and civil laws that now have been done away with, that Christ has fulfilled them, that they have been put away. However, is that the same as the moral law? Is that the same as the moral law? And I'm going to put forward to you that no, it is not. That the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, is a law that has existed from the beginning and will exist all the way to the end. Do you ever think about the Ten Commandments did not exist when, when Cain killed Abel? How were they to know that was even wrong? Is Cain without excuse? Because God had not spoke down on high, thou shall not murder Yet still, is Cain not punished 
for his sin. When you look at Abraham, the Ten Commandments had not come down from Mount Sinai at this point, but Abraham um, lies about Sarah. It says, she's my sister. It's a half-truth, which is a whole lie. That Abraham is, uh, Sarah is my sister, and he's, he's punished. It's sin. It's seen as sin. And he lets uh, Pharaoh commit adultery with Sarah, and it's seen as sin. Well, is Abraham, does he have an excuse? He didn't know the Ten Commandments. God had not spoken yet. No, the moral law exists. The moral law just exists. And the moral law is written on the hearts of mankind. Romans chapter 1, we've read it twice now in our fellowship, but it says that though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Though the unbelieving pagan did not, does not have the express Ten Commandments, they know the moral law of God. It is written on their hearts. Now, this gets dangerous ground because you say, well, what do you mean, Darren? So everyone internally knows what's right and wrong. It's written on there, but because of the fall, this has become very cloudy. Our internal barometers, our internal monitors of right and wrong, it's written there, but it has become very cloudy. And so what has God done? Mount Sinai, first words God writes down on the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. He codifies them. He literally puts them in stone. Here is my moral law that has always been, and in a very interesting way, always will be. When you think about the moral commands, we will be in heaven doing what? Obeying the Ten Commandments. This will go on for forever. So when we ask, are the Ten Commandments still in effect? Are what are when it comes to the law of God, when the Ten Commandments are meant, we can say with full assurance, yes, the Ten Commandments do are still in effect. The Ten Commandments do still hold power, sway over us. And so what comes up is in effect for what? So we talked about the three things. You guys remember the three different kinds of laws? Civil, ceremonial, and moral law. Civil and ceremonial, done away, abrogated through Christ. But the moral law continues on. And so what, what this Ten Commandments, this moral law continues on. What's the point? To what end? To what, what is the purpose of this moral law? And so three more things on this side. We'll get through them quickly. And this is the uses of the law. I think in your, in your title, we had the types and uses of the law. Types of law. Ceremonial, civil, and moral. The uses of the law. What is the law about? And, there are th- and likewise, there are three classifications. This is all built up to help us with the Ten Commandments. Uses of the law. I know this is heavy teaching. Sorry, we'll get, to, we'll get somewhere. Three uses of the law. Here's how you can think of them. A muzzle. A muzzle. You know what a muzzle is? We got a muzzle. We have a mirror and a map. Three M's. A muzzle, a mirror, and a map. The uses of the law. Three uses of the law as a muzzle and as a mirror and as a map. The law is a muzzle in that it, it restricts sin. In a very real way, when the law is out there and the law written in our hearts, it restricts sin. That man has this law, has this internal compass, and it is a muzzle. Man, believe it or not, is not as bad as he could be. I mean, I... I know we look around at the world and we think we're pretty bad off, but honestly, we could be a lot worse. Even the worst person you can think of in the world could have murdered more people, but let some live. 
You know, I mean, we're not as bad as we could be. The law does exist as a muzzle. You know, it's did you may watch the Comey hearings. I don't know how you can miss it. If you had the TV on, it was on every channel. But the guy gets up, right, and he raises his hand, and he swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Why? We still respect the idea of truthfulness. There is a muzzle. The law is a muzzle. We still think telling the truth is good. And we still think murder is wrong, by and large. And so the law is a muzzle. The law is a muzzle. The law exists as a muzzle to restrain humanity from being as evil as it possibly could be. So it's a muzzle, but it's also a mirror. This is the second use of the law. The law is a mirror. It shows us our own sinfulness. So when we talk about the Ten Commandments, this is where I'm saying to you, you're going to hate me at some point, because the Ten Commandments become a mirror. And it sh- what happens in a mirror? Well, you see yourself. And if you're, if you're really unfortunate, you go to the hotel and you pull down the mirror, and it's one of those magnifying ones, you see yourself real closely. <laughs> it's one of those mirrors. That's the kind of mirror that the law of God is, is it doesn't just, it really shows the real thing. Have you ever had that happen? Like the lighting in my bathroom is great, and then I go somewhere where it's like fluorescent lighting, you know, and I'm not, no. All you women have experienced this. I know you have. You go to the hotel, you flip the light off, and you're like, I think I'm going to do my hair in the dark. You know, one of those things. Because you don't like what you see. And that's what the law of God is. It comes to us, yes, as a muzzle and as a mirror. It shows us all the ways we've transgressed, all the ways we've fallen short, all the ways we have not lived up the way that we should have. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 7 when he says the law told him not to covet. And after, after hearing this command not to covet, what happened? Produced in him all sorts of covetousness. All of a sudden, everywhere he looked, he could see himself coveting. The law was a mirror. The law is a muzzle. The law is a mirror. Paul concludes that the law is holy and righteous and good. And one of the clear implications is that because the law is holy, righteous, and good, it will reflect to us all the ways we are not holy, we are not righteous, and we are not good. So the law, three uses, is a muzzle, a mirror, and a map. The third use of the law is that the law of God then guides us into holy and righteous behavior. It muzzles us as a society, it mirrors to us our own shortcomings, and it gives to us a map. This is what love looks like. This is what love for God and love for neighbor look like. All the law and prophets are summed up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? We all got that, and how that fleshes out in the Ten Commandments, this is, this is what the, the, the third use of the law is. It is a map for right living, how we love and seen in the Ten Commandments. The Christian seeks to obey God not to get his approval, but out of the joy of knowing that they have received God's approval and acceptance through Jesus Christ. The, the law of God, its third use, is as a map. If this is made clear that, that in the prologue to the Ten Commandments, so way back in Exodus, where we're supposed to be working from Exodus chapter 20, there's this prologue of the Ten Commandments, and it says this God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God introduces the Ten Commandments by first reminding his people that they are already his. He's the God who brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
And then he says, in light of what I have now done, I've already done, now walk this way. The law of God is a map. It's a muzzle, restrains sin. It's a mirror showing us the sinfulness that we have. It's a map saying, here's how to now walk in a way that honors God. So what does this point matter for us today? When we ask the question, and when I made the statement, the Ten Commandments are still binding on us today, and I said, yes, they are, it's very important to follow that up with, in what kind of way? Ten Commandments still binding? Yes, they are. Well, in what sort of way? In what way are the Ten Commandments binding? And if we mean by that, and if you contend by that, that the Ten Commandments are binding for your justification, the answer is a firm no. That the Ten Commandments, if, if they are for your justification, it is a firm no. God in His giving of the law was never a God of do this to earn my favor. We see from the prologue, God says, I have done this for you. I have rescued you from Egypt. I have brought you out of death, out of bondage, out of slavery. Now live this way. I have rescued, now live this way. He has not said, do these things that I might rescue you. And so when we talk about the Ten Commandments still being binding as a muzzle and as a, as a mirror and as a map, it is not those things so that we can then earn God's favor. The, the Ten Commandments are not binding upon us for justification. They alone are not the good news of God. The Christian gospel is not a declaration of what must be done to find favor with God, but rather the gospel is a realization of what has already been done for us in Jesus Christ. What has been done by us that has put us out of God's favor in breaking the Ten Commandments and what has been done for us in Jesus Christ, the righteous one, coming to earth and perfectly fulfilling the law of God. Jesus shows up and he is without sin. All of us are going to fail the Ten Commandments. Jesus shows up and he never does. And what, what happens as a reward for that? He suffers wrath. Whose wrath? Not his own, but ours. Our wrath, our penalty, our punishment expiated, given to Jesus so that through repentance and faith, our confession, when you come to communion, this is what communion table is about. I confess, I've transgressed. I have fallen short. I have no works to lift up to God for my justification. What I have is the blood of a righteous substitute. I have someone who came and lived righteously for me so that through repentance and faith in His work, faith in your Son, faith in my Savior, I am forgiven of my sin and seen as one who always did obey. Philip Graham Ryken put it this way, Many Christians think that the law is somehow opposed to the gospel. Like, we're, we're, we're gospel people. We don't want to talk about the law. Many Christians think that the law is somehow opposed to the gospel. Going on, he says, they assume that in the Old Testament, salvation came by law, whereas in the New Testament, salvation comes by grace. But the truth is that salvation has always come by grace. And the law and the gospel work together for salvation in both Testaments. The grace of the gospel has never been opposed to the proper use of the law. The moral law of God has not changed one dot or one iota, and it will not so long as heaven and earth remain. And this is good 
This is good. On the level that it restrains evil in some degree throughout society. And it's bad for us on the level that it shows us our wickedness. If the law could just pass away, we're all okay. Forget about it. No. It's bad news in that it shows us our wickedness and depravity before a righteous God. But just as soon as we are crushed by the demands of the law, don't close your ears to the gospel declaration that then comes to you. The joyous declaration of the gospel. There was someone who perfectly fulfilled the law and was without sin, Jesus Christ. He perfectly obeyed his father and deserved to enter God's eternal joy. He suffers the Father's wrath in our place. Condemned he stood so that our punishment would be expiated, given out, given to Jesus, and through repentance and faith, his righteousness given to us. And now it's in the joy of that reality. It's in the joy of that hope. If the law has muzzled you, if the law has mirrored you and shown you your own shortcomings, and you've heard the gospel, Jesus died to rescue you, to forgive you of your sins, the law becomes a map. This is what it looks like now to live in the joy of what my Savior has done for me. Let's pray. Father, press into our hearts the the goodness of the law and the goodness of the gospel. My desire is not to just show up and put on happy faces and pretend and whatever, this has huge ramifications for our life and for our real joy. Making it through the suffering of this life, we need real substantial joy. And it's the joy that is found through the crushing realization of our sinfulness before you and the abundant grace that we have given to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see it, God, and hearts full of joy in its truth. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.